I was steeped in the Roman Catholic tradition, but something within me was craving to know more. And then I think I just, in my search, interestingly, I prayed to Christ to lead me to that path. Yogananda and the Self-Realization Fellowship. I, ca- I searched quite a bit before, but that I was drawn to the teachings of India, to the, to the Hindu Bible, which is the Bhagavad Gita, I read, read a translation of that. And then I knew that I wanted to find a yoga path, and I searched and searched and found Paramahansa Yogananda's yoga path right in my own backyard, in my own hometown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I traveled all around the world. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the arrival in America of Paramahansa Yogananda. Widely considered to be the father of yoga in the West, Yogananda devoted his life to traveling and speaking across America, bringing a message of spirituality and unity between religions. He introduced millions to the practice of meditation and yoga. His influence was vast. His autobiography was deeply influential in the lives of figures from George Harrison to Elvis Presley. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple Computers, arranged for every attendee of his funeral to receive a copy, a book he is said to have read every year. To learn more about Yogananda, Beliefs producer Jay Woodward went to the Self-Realization Fellowship International Headquarters on top of Mount Washington, overlooking downtown Los Angeles. We're at the Self-Realization Fellowship International Headquarters, and we're on the top of Mount Washington, overlooking downtown Los Angeles. And I would like to welcome you all to Beliefs. And it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm Brother Prafalananda. Thank you. I'm Brahmachari Andy. It's a joy to be here. I'm Bumananda, Brother Bumananda. <laughs> and it's a great joy to be with you. I'm Sister Draupadi. It is my great joy. Thank you so much. So I would like to start by asking someone if you could possibly tell me the story of Yogananda and when he came to America and brought yoga to the West. Who'd like to take that one? And this is Sister Draupadi. For those of your listeners who don't know who Paramahansa Yogananda is, he was an Indian master, guru, and yogi whose mission it was to bring the ancient science of Kriya Yoga to the West. He was commissioned by a line of masters to do that. And it was in 1920 when he was invited to the Congress of Religions. And in that same year, he traveled here and he arrived in Boston. And it was in that year that he established his first ashram in the city of Boston. He felt inwardly guided to expand beyond, and he was called to the West. And so he traveled out to Los Angeles looking for a place where he could establish his work. He purchased these acres and this building in 1925, and that's when he established Self-Realization Fellowship. I would like to ask you, what does it mean when a guru comes to America and brings that uh, kind of energy, the kind of leadership, the kind of spiritual leadership? Uh, Brother Bhumananda, tell me a little bit about the guru culture and when Yogananda arrived, how that might have been perceived and and what he started to work with. The interesting thing about Yogananda 
is when he came to America, he didn't necessarily present himself as I am the guru in that context. And uh, it's remarkable the humility he showed. What America saw was they saw someone who had this divine presence. He seemed to almost walk out of the pages of the scriptures. He spoke with divine authority, and yet he spoke to them on their level. So he would talk about developing dynamic willpower. He would talk about using your creative abilities of spirit, things that not just religious speakers could relate to, but the practical businessmen, the scientists could relate to. And so the first few years he was in America, it was more of uh, small gatherings. But for the masses, they didn't know too much about Yogananda. And then about three years after he landed in 1920 at Kadan, and he started filling the largest auditoriums in this country, he was one of the great public speakers of his generation. Uh, he could go into any city and just pack the place with thousands of people who were just mesmerized by that commanding, that uh, divine presence. And yet he presented something that everyone could relate to. It was a teaching that was universal, that was practical, and he did not emphasize his personality. That's what um, these days often, uh, uh, there's a certain concept of a guru, you know, and there's much, much emphasis on the personality. But when who we call our guru, Yogananda, came, he, what he emphasized is not the uh, gur guru cult, so to speak, but the teachings of Kriya Yoga, which he said and showed, are universally applicable. This is Brother Prafalananda. As Brother Bhumananda was just pointing out, uh, Yogananda never presented himself as the guru in the way we think of a guru perhaps nowadays so much, guru culture in America is actually very widespread because all of Christianity is guru culture. Jesus is the guru in this kind of uh, framework of all Christianity. And so a guru is simply a spiritual master who is able to give spiritual enlightenment to others. So maybe the more appropriate question then is, what is a guru? Well, a guru is one who has found their own liberation, we could say. One who has found union with God and uh, knows then how to give that same elevation of consciousness to others. And that's what Jesus was able to do on the day of Pentecost, you know, with uh, his, his close followers when uh, he told them that he would send the Holy Ghost. So tell me what the... Um, Brother Andy, um, tell, me, tell me what the Kriya Yoga is. Uh, Kriya Yoga is, a, is our highest meditation technique. It is uh, a practice, a breathing practice, through Kriya Yoga, we find out, finally, who and what we truly are. So it's as simple as that. He came to teach us the science of religion, the science of yoga. And, you know, there's a, an understanding of yoga these days that it's uh, postures and exercises, but it's much, much more than that. 
Yoga means union. And that is really the essence of yoga is we're here to unify ourselves with who and what we truly are. And Kriya Yoga is a technique to do that. Can you describe the technique at all so that someone who has maybe got a casual understanding of yoga might be able to understand the difference? So Kriya Yoga is a meditation technique. So there's you, you're sitting still. And it's a breathing exercise in order to bring the consciousness, bring the energy inside of the body back to the real self, the capital S, the soul. And to realize that soul, we use this technique. It's a, it's a breathing technique. You, it, it's very different from yoga. Postures are to prepare yourself for the deeper techniques. This is what yoga is for. It's to prepare the body and the mind, to calm the body and the mind, and to bring the energy within so you can practice your meditation technique. So Kriya is one of those meditation techniques. Of course, it's, uh, uh, I don't want to say the word secret, but you have, there's prep preparations, so I can't talk specifically about Kriya and what it is, but um, maybe some of the, the ministers can talk more about, uh, have a better idea. So the, the process is about preparing, preparing yourself to meditate, to pray, to turn inward. Do I have that correct? Yes, you do. And I'll give an illustration for that. Uh, this is Brother Bumananda. If I decide that I'm going to set aside the evening and I'm going to devote myself to loving and praying to God, okay, and so I get into a room, but there's one problem with the room. There's a TV, and it's on loud, and there's some very engrossing movie. Well, I can pray and express my love to God all I want, but it's going to be very difficult because of the distraction there of the show. Well, what yoga teaches is we're in the big show, and as long as the energy is pulled to those sensory nerves, this world is completely real to us, but even science today tells us it has no ultimate reality. Physicists will tell you that all matter is energy, and behind the energy is really consciousness, our thought. They're really exploring these avenues in today's world. So what Kriya Yoga does, to put it in very simple terms, it turns off the TV. <laughs> That's wonderful. It turns off the senses. Gradually, it takes time. But with time, what happens is there's a shift and the energy is no longer flowing to the sensory nerves. It's flowing into and up the spine into what in yoga we call the chakras, the divine centers of spiritual perception. And when that happens, when the energy shifts, your consciousness shifts. And all of a sudden you realize, I'm not this little physical machine that needs to eat three times a day and sleep and can get hurt and sometime is, someday is going to die. I'm the consciousness that inhabits and empowers the machine. And with that comes a tremendous sense of well-being and connectedness to not just your own individual consciousness, but to a greater consciousness, a collective consciousness to which we all are part of. So in a nutshell, that's how Kriya Yoga takes you within. Did all of you come to this tradition after having spent some time in other belief systems and other faith traditions? I was Roman Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was Unitarian. 
<laughs> Brother Andy? Yeah, I grew up Jewish. I grew up in a Jewish atheist family. <laughs> so, Sister Draupadi, do you have a memory of the person that was Roman Catholic once? I do, uh, because I was steeped in the Roman Catholic tradition, but something within me was craving to know more. And then I think I just, in my search, interestingly, I prayed to Christ to lead me to that path that would draw me closer to him. So I found these teachings. I, ca- I searched quite a bit before, but that I was drawn to the teachings of India, to the, to the Hindu Bible, which is the Bhagavad Gita. I read, read a translation of that. And then I knew that I wanted to find a yoga path. And I searched and searched and found Paramahansa Yogananda's yoga path right in my own backyard, in my own hometown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I traveled all around the world. And not all around the world, but to many places and found it in my own backyard. Brothers, did, did you have a similar experience coming from Abrahamic faiths into, into an Eastern faith, into a, a, an indigenous uh, wisdom-based um, belief system, if I've got that right? Brother Prathlananda. Yes. Uh, as a Unitarian, you're not really an Abrahamic faith, I think, uh, in that sense. But... Uh, I knew I was looking for, and the Unitarian uh, tradition is excellent for leaving your mind open to all possibilities. And I knew, though, growing up, that there was more than I was finding. And I was looking, and all other, like Sister Dropity was uh, also, where is it? Where's the truth? And yet, when I found this teaching, I went to one meditation. I'd never had any idea what self-realization fellowship was uh, until I went to my very first meditation. And nobody told me how to meditate. They'd already started. I went in late. And I sat down, and I had no idea what to do. Nobody told me, no, you have to look at the spiritual eye, and you have to sit with the spine straight. Nobody said any of that. But I just felt this energy, spiritual consciousness, focused attention on God. And I couldn't have put it that way at that time. But it's it, when, I, when that meditation was done, I still had no idea what Self-Realization Fellowship was or is, but I knew I found what I was looking for. Brahmacharya Andy, did you have a similar experience? When, when did you first encounter the Self-Realization Fellowship and decide to enter the practice? I think I was at a point in my life where the world and my life had brought me to seeking something deeper. And I was deeply unhappy. And it wasn't a matter of frolicking off to God. I think life in the world brought me to a place of desperation. And I knew there had to be more. And I was part of a practice where I was looking for meditation techniques. It was very specific. And I started to look around at a whole bunch of different places. And when I grew up, Judaism just never resonated with me. There wasn't a deep connection there. So that was much earlier than when I found these teachings. And I had a bar mitzvah. I had all those things. But I was just going through the motions. At this point where I was going through despair and, and looking for something, needing something, that's when I found Self-Realization Fellowship. I read a whole bunch of books. I went to some other churches. But 
like brother, I went to the Hollywood Temple here in in Los Angeles, and I saw a minister, and he was not a great speaker. You know, that was the funny thing. He was not a great speaker, but his eyes, he zapped me with his eyes, and I was moved. I felt something. I said, that's what I want. He has something that I want. And I said, let me try this. I became a scientist at that point, an experimenter. I, because I love self-realization fellowship because it, you don't have to believe anything to get started. You don't need to believe anything. You don't have to wear certain clothes. You don't, there, we have no dogma. If We have no dogma. We say practice these meditation techniques, have your own experience. So that's what really hooked me to this path. I practiced and I started to have an experience. I said, oh, this is real. I'm having an experience, and it's just grown as the years have gone on and the practice has deepened. Can you tell me how Yogananda's practice and message and development, like how did the, um, the process or the teachings grow when he came to America and over the 30 years that he, he lived and practiced and worked and taught? People, many, many responded to his, of course, divine dynamic personality but then those who came and responded to that initial track attraction, then they saw that there was something he was offering them that they could keep with them even when he went on his travels and moved on to a different city, and that was the teachings of meditation. And he very much encouraged the startup of small meditation groups in different cities. In fact, he used to say, I don't want big, huge temples filled with thousands and thousands of people. That is not my mission. What I want, small groups of devotees where their hearts are wrapped in God. And so in all these cities where he would visit, these little meditation groups would pop up, and these devotees, we call them, the seekers, they would receive his teachings through a correspondence course sent from the headquarters here. He was incidentally... You know, in India, of course, the tradition is the guru gives you the teachings personally. And Yogananda came to America, so how can you reach millions of people by doing that? He'd have to multiply himself a thousand forms. So what he did, he came up with this revolutionary system of distributing these sat teachings based on uh, truth and seeking God, and he sent them through the mail. He formulated this whole mail course. And so all over this country, all over the world, these students were receiving these lessons. They were applying these very practical step-by-step methods in meditation. And as some of the uh, monks and nuns here have shared with you, they started getting results. And when you get results, when your life starts changing, oh my goodness, that sells you like nothing else can. And that's why we always emphasize Uh, When I talk at the temples, I'll I'll tell them, you know, we can give a nice talk, and that's good. It can inspire you. But to make that inspiration a permanent blessing and part of you, you have to practice. The power of these teachings lies in the practice, and that's what we emphasize again and again. You had asked earlier, you know, about when we started and how things are different now. And the wonderful thing is as you develop the habit of deep, meditation, striving to go deep into it with your attention, with your devotion, with your putting your whole heart into it, 
you get the sense after a while that you're on a continuous journey. So if I were to look back at the person I was even two or three years ago, I'm different now. I feel I've changed very much. In fact, sometimes I'll tell people the best advertisement I could ever come up with for SRF, and if I could do this right, it would bring in thousands, was I'd go up to a large crowd and I'd say, I want to introduce you to someone. And then I'd bring out the young man who I was when I started. And after talking five minutes, I think they'd all sign up. (laughs) (laughs) So um, he couldn't have known that he would be building this, um, this beautiful headquarters and this remarkable wisdom and bringing them to what would eventually become Los Angeles. Um, Los Angeles as we know it today. And what do you think he would have thought of today's Los Angeles? Well, this is Brahmacharya Andy. You know, Yogananda saw Los Angeles, I believe he called this, correct me if I'm wrong, the Benares of the West. So he... The Benares is... Benares is a very deeply spiritual city in India, ancient city, and Mass, uh, Yogananda saw Los Angeles as the Banaras of the West. So he saw the seeds. He saw, he could foretell that there was a ripeness and he, that he didn't see on the East Coast in Boston in 1920. So he started there, but he, he felt that the ground wasn't as fertile as the West Coast, where generally people are more open-minded and certainly back in the 20s. So he came here. He felt that this would be the place to start his work, to start his teaching. Without Yogananda... How do devotees come to SRF now? Um, how does this, how does the interaction with the rest of Los Angeles work? Is this um, a place where seekers come or is there a way on board? So Yogananda started several temples here in Southern California in, in his time. We now have eight temples uh, here in Southern California. So we have quite a presence and we have Sundays and Thursday services at those temples. So Southern California has got a lot of attention, but we also have over 800 meditation groups in pretty much every major city throughout the world. So people can come through our website, again, another avenue uh, that we've just uh, redesigned, but our website is a is a place to disseminate who and what we are. We're now on social media, which we just started. We're late. but <laughs> It's uh, the modern correspondence method. Exactly. Right, right. So we, we're late, but we're, we're, we're now on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so people can find us there. And we have lecture tours throughout the world. We travel, monks and nuns travel throughout the world to give lecture tours, uh, public lectures, and to teach the techniques and to have Kriya Yoga initiations. So there's quite a few avenues and ways that people understand and get to know about Self-Realization Fellowship. We're, we're trying to open the door a little wider. We, we're not into proselytizing. You know, we believe in self-realization. It's a very uh, personal journey. So we, we do want to open the door wider, though, and, and to show people that we're here and we have these techniques if they're interested. But we're, no, we're not about saying, this is for everybody, this is, you know, your path. No. There's many paths out there, and there's many personalities and many personality types. Some people may be drawn to Buddhism or to Catholicism or to Judaism, and that's fine with us. That's fine with us. But if they want to try our techniques, if they want to try meditation, we're more than happy to greet them and show them how. I, I guess I have one last question. 
and that is um, this remarkable man coming to a, a remarkable land that is just still, even now, in the process of getting its feet under it and, uh, and learning who it is. Um, we lost this man eventually. How, how, did, how did he die? And what, what was that like? Well, you have to understand, Yogananda, he was a master. What does that mean? Not one who's master of others, but one who's completely master of himself. He knew his life would not be long. In the last months of his life, he was dropping hints like crazy to those who were close to him. What, what were the hints? I'm living on borrowed time. They used to hear that from him again and again. And beyond that, in those last months, there was a real sense of urgency in everything he did. He knew his time was limited. Once one of the uh, close disciples was urging him to, uh, if we could only spend more time on this piece of writing, and he just looked at her and said, there is no more time. There is no more time. So there was that very deep sense of urgency in those last days. And then when he went down to the Biltmore, where this famous scene where he, in uh, India, we call it Mahasamadhi, which means conscious exit from the body. And he gave this beautiful talk that just, it was not to um, necessarily an audience that was totally SRF. There were many government officials there. It was a, a reception for the ambassador of India, which is fitting when you consider that all his life he had worked to promote the highest philosophy and culture and religion of India. But he gave this wonderful talk and everyone was spellbound. And then he just lifted his eyes to the uh, Christ Consciousness Center, the Kataska Center, the seat of divine awareness, and slowly uh, fell to the ground. Yeah, slowly fell to the ground. And one of the disciples, Dayama, rushed to his side, who was one of his very closest disciples served later as one of his spiritual successors. And as she knelt by his form, she speaks of this wonderful experience she had where she could feel his soul leaving, and yet he, even in his exit, he lifted her, as she tells it, to just this wonderful, wonderful divine consciousness. And she could feel no grief. And all, the only thought that came to her was, now my time has come, I must be strong for my guru. I must be strong for my guru. Thank you all for joining me on Beliefs. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a tremendous pleasure, Jonathan. I'm so glad to have been able to participate. My pleasure. Thank you. We've enjoyed it, and very good luck with your work. All the best to you, Jonathan. It's been a joy. Thank you. Our guests were monastics of the Self-Realization Fellowship in Los Angeles. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.